Well, amen and good morning. On behalf of Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka, I just want to say thank you. It's a blessing to be here with you. And also uh, to Pastor Jacob, who to call him Pastor Jacob is a testimony to God's grace in the sense that we've been praying and deliberating as friends and brothers in Christ about Grace Bible Church for years and to see it come to fruition. So that you are gathered here under the banner of Jesus Christ in the name of Grace Bible Church is a little surreal uh, for me to look out and to see you here. Um, but shame on us for doubting the power of God's word that he indeed calls his people together and Christ reigns from the throne. And so I'm thankful to be able to say good morning, Grace Bible Church, a church that we have prayed for for years. And so it is an honor. I'm also thankful that I got the <clears throat> note that all of the leadership of Grace Bible Church wear quarter zip fleece and I am wearing my uniform this morning. So, so let's pray. We have much to study and very little time in which to do it. So if you would, let's pray. And while you're doing that, let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your power to call together your people. You said, my sheep know my voice. They hear me and they follow me. And Lord... The power of your word, your gospel, has gathered this people together. How exciting. What a foretaste of heaven. And so, Lord, I pray, would you be merciful to us this morning and open your word to us in manifold ways. For the good of Grace Bible Church, for their joy in you and for your honor in them. We ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, and apply a passage that we often speed through or overlook, and yet we know that all Scripture testifies of Christ according to Luke 24. You said all of Scripture bears witness of me. So would you come and show us Christ from Galatians 2, that the saints be strengthened, that they would run their race well, and that until you return, which may be soon, but nevertheless, until you return, may Grace Bible Church be a beacon of gospel integrity, both in doctrine and in deed. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message is Gospel Integrity. Gospel Integrity, and the subtitle is probably just as important, and I am known for having verbose subtitles, so I pared it down to just four or five words. The subtitle is The Necessity of right doctrine and righteous doing. The necessity of right doctrine and righteous doing. We're looking at Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. So I'm going to read the text in total here in just a minute, but just a few opening words. Pastor Jacob has wisely chosen to take you through the book of Ephesians as a church. And so I have no doubt, because I know Jacob's commitment to the fidelity of Scripture and to expository preaching and to Christ-centered preaching, I have no doubt that between his aim and also knowing the book of Ephesians, that you will indeed see glorious things. I have no doubt that you'll be fed richly on doctrines such as justification and adoption, and regeneration, and predestination, and election, and a myriad of things that the book of Ephesians has been known for 
ever since his penning. I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you don't know Martin Lloyd-Jones, look him up. The good doctor spent, I think, 11 years taking his church through the book of Ephesians and still did not uncover all of the gold in its pages. Do not do 11 years, Jacob. That's out of our jurisdiction. But the doctor did it. So I have no doubt as I come here today that for the next few months or years, perhaps, that you're going to be fed richly on Christ-centered doctrine. So when Jacob asked me to come and, and preach to you, in addition to being extremely humbled and excited, I was thinking pastorally, Lord, how do I compliment, uh, not to commit eisegesis, not to cherry-pick verses, but how do I compliment what my brother is doing here in grounding, very wisely, grounding a young church in solid biblical doctrine. And so what I want to do is I want to take you to a passage that is often overlooked and not to chide. You guys are you're doing amazingly. There are so many churches praying for you. I mean, I was just down in North Carolina this week. There's people down there praying for you and you guys are kind of rock stars and you don't even know it. There's so many people just rejoicing over what God has done. But what do I want to do is just come to you humbly and try to maintain biblical balance. I have not always done that well personally or pastorally. And so <clears throat> I want to take you to Galatians chapter 2 in an effort to maintain gospel integrity. So my aim today for Grace Bible Church is to help you remain biblically Balanced, and that is something that Satan constantly wants to undo. We can overemphasize the work of Satan and become almost mystical in our thinking, and we can underemphasize our understanding of his work to our detriment. And I know in my life, he seeks to spin the pendulum one way or the other. If I'm focusing on doctrine, he'll have me go so far that way that I become cold in my affections. Or if I'm thinking about evangelism and service and love, I'll go too far that way. And so, so much of the Christian life, according to Martin Luther, is trying not to fall out of the saddle on either side of the horse. And that's exactly what I would have for you today, is to help you remain biblically balanced. So if you're getting doctrine, I want to push this way, so that you stay in the horse and you run. In Ray Ortland's little book from Nine Marks called Simply the Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. Just listen to what he says here in this, this fight for deeds and doctrine and remaining balanced. Ortland says this, today God is renewing within the church a concern for a deeper knowledge of his truth in scripture and love in Christ. Amen. Yet, it already is observable that Satan seeks to derail this concern in the congregations that possess it. Hear this. It's not enough for us to ask, does our church teach gospel doctrine? We need to ask that question. We must also ask, is our church culture clearly aligned with that gospel doctrine? I am personally invested in this because, A, as I've said, I've prayed for you as a church body, and some of you I've known for years, and I love you in Christ. Some of you are related to me, and I love you because you're my family. <laughs> and I eat your food all the time, and I don't want you to poison it, so I love you. 
So I am personally invested in this because I love you. But I am also personally invested in this message because I myself have lost gospel integrity. There have been times where I have done so much study, reading, 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 and I I have no apologies for that because you can't love what you don't know and you cannot love a God that you don't know. But in my doing, I've become overbalanced to where I have inadvertently lost gospel integrity because I've added to it. I've turned my nose up to those who don't have the theological acumen that I have. I have added to the gospel. I have added to sola fide, inadvertently, ironically and tragically, by looking down my nose at fellow brothers and sisters who, are they saved by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone? Yes, but they don't parent like I do. They're not coming to my small group. That's an issue. And I've done it. So, mea culpa. I'm confessing my sin to you, and I'm inviting you to come and join me in fresh repentance, in faith in Christ, for the sake of gospel-centered unity. Not one in which we check our brains at the door, but one in which we take our brains with us, and we enlarge our hearts. My main point is this, so if you want to write it down, I always try to get my main point in one sentence, because if I can't get that, I don't know my text. We protect the integrity of the gospel when our conduct commends our confession. Commends means to affirm or to um, uplift and hold up as right. We protect the integrity of the gospel when our conduct commends our confession. Therefore, we must take heed, and I must take heed of the time. I'm going to move fast. We must take heed because, number one, no one is immune. I have three points. Number one, no one is immune. And I know we got some note takers out there, so I'll give you a second. No one is immune. So let's read our text, and let's start clicking through. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, who is who? Peter, you guys got a good pastor, that's right, you know those names. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I, which would be Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's awkward. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, meaning Peter. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, look at this, this is so key, thinking, where does he get his title from? Is this a biblical concept? Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, doctrine and deeds, Creed and conduct. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Now, we might read that if, you know, if you're doing a reading plan or maybe in a morning devotion and think it's one of those kind of idiosyncratic, you know, cultural things that something happened that apparently was of some biblical weight that I don't really understand. But if you slow down, this is really massive. This is a very pregnant passage, and we're going to pull it apart as much as we can. No one is immune. We're talking about Peter and Paul, two pillars of the apostolic church. This is post-Pentecost. These are two spirit-filled men who have seen the risen Christ, who are pinning Scripture. And it says, I rebuked him publicly. This would be the equivalent of someone flipping over a table at a church potluck and raising their voice. Would you pay attention to what's going on? Would this be awkward for passive-aggressive Minnesotans? (laughs) This is a big deal. Listen to the words of Dr. Philip Riken. Riken says, eating is a cultural event. What we eat and with whom we eat says something about who we are. End quote. So go back to your passage with that in mind. Remember when they they chided Jesus for eating with sinners? Because eating with people at that time and really still in our day says a lot about who you are, what you believe, and who they are and what you're doing. You don't just eat with anybody. You break bread with people you identify with, that you love, that you have no problem identifying with. And here in our text, it says Peter was eating with who? With Gentiles. So this isn't like grabbing a snack or going to a coffee bar. This is a cultural, social, emotional declaration that we are one. Jew-Gentile. Go with me very quickly to Acts chapter 10 to get even more context on why this is important. One of the things you ask when you're studying a text is, who does it involve? Who are they? Who are they writing to? What's the context? What's going on? And what other scripture can shed light on this passage of scripture? And Acts 10 helps us immensely in this regard. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 9. This is Peter, Cephas, the guy in our text. In Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and he'd wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. These things are unclean to a Jew And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then if you follow the text along, when he goes to Cornelius and he begins to realize what the vision is saying, God is saying, in Christ there is no division. 
I have made all things clean in him. All law, all sacrifice, everything is fulfilled in Christ. Now, go and have fellowship with them. So we go back to Galatians 2. And when we read Galatians 2 in the light of Acts chapter 10, we realize, so here's a spirit-filled guy He walked with Jesus. He's already felt the sting of betraying Christ. He's had a vision from God and heard him say, don't call common what I've called clean, that in Christ all things are made clean. And yet, these men came, and who were these men? Pseudo-believers. What they were coming to do was to spy out what was going on. And they did not just say, you Christians who used to be Jews can still hold on to some Jewish customs. That's fine. We all have cultural proclivities. It shows up in the way we dress and the foods we eat and different things. But what they were expecting was, not only do you have faith in Christ, but you better hold on to these things too, specifically circumcision. And Peter, he lost gospel integrity because Peter, who knew we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, it's in grace alone, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but because of the fear of man, because he wanted to meet their standard of righteousness, which was Jesus plus, it says he pulled away. He got up from the table, he wiped his mouth and left his plate, and he, he walked away from fellowship with people that he knew theologically were his brothers and sisters in Christ, but he lost gospel integrity. And I don't think any of us are immune from this. So before we move on very quickly to point two, I just have to ask by way of pastoral application, where are you, where am I prone to add to faith? You might read this and go, this is a Jew-Gentile thing, I, I don't relate to it, it has nothing to do with my life. Okay, let me, let me break it down and bring it into 2020. I know that I'm saved by faith in Christ alone. But if you want to come to my small group, you have to also have this. I know that I'm saved by Christ alone and his blood alone. But if you want to hang with us after church, you better have this. Let me just ask by way of application from the text, who do you invite to dinner? Or maybe more telling, who do you not? You can quote to me Calvin and Luther all you want but you will lose gospel integrity if it's Jesus plus another standard of righteousness when it comes to fellowship. And if the world was ever watching the church now to see if this gospel is legit, it's now. And I say that in love, and I say that as a sinner who has done it. Number one, no one is immune. Not Peter, not Paul, not me and you. Number two, the stakes are immense. The stakes are immense. 
Back to our text, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Because he stood condemned. So you might be thinking, well, so what? I mean, this is, a, this is an intramural argument between two apostles. Has nothing to, there's really nothing at stake here. But the language is very, very strong. He says, I oppose Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Meaning, he stood condemned before God. So Paul, as we know, is if you read the Pauline literature, he's, he's not a mean guy. Paul is very humble. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, I'm the chief of sinners. And so don't think that Paul is just looking for a fight. You know, he's just, just looking for a reason to nitpick somebody in the church. No, Paul looks and sees Peter doing something in that simple act of pushing away from the table and just kind of letting them do their thing and hanging out with the guys that he wants to meet their standard of righteousness, Paul sees that and he says, you just sinned against the church. It is a public sin. This is a gospel issue, and I'm going to get in your business in front of everybody. This is awkward. This is like tipping over a table at a church potluck. But he does it in love because he says what? Even Barnabas was led astray. It says, when you start letting go of gospel integrity, you might have what Peter had. You might have great theology, but when you start adding to it with self-righteousness and extra-biblical standards of fellowship, it says, other people are going to be affected by it. And Paul's pastoral heart was breaking, and he says, whoa, for your joy, for the glory of Christ, and for the integrity of this gospel that we preach, Peter, hold up a second. Says he stood condemned before God. And you might think, so he left the table. But just glance back at Galatians 1. Galatians 1 8. Paul is massively concerned for the church in Galatia. And uses some of the strongest language that you can conjure up, theologically or otherwise, to shoot a shot over their bow. I mean, you look at Galatians 1.8, it says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, let him be damned. And you think, good grief. What were they doing? Were they sacrificing pigs on the altar or something? Like, what was going on? They had really good theology. They believed everything you believed. You just have to also be circumcised in addition to that gospel. And it's just one little thing. It's just one little extra step. That's all. And yet, Paul calls down the wrath of God and says, no, no, no. You can have your social proclivities and your different preferences, and we, we can have you know, different cultural backgrounds, but when it comes to fellowship, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to saying Christ is mine and I am his, there is nothing. It's Jesus full stop. It's not Jesus plus. And so you got to get Galatians 1. When you come into Galatians 2 and you go, Paul's not playing around because he loves Peter, he loves the church, he loves the gospel, and more importantly, he loves the honor of Almighty God. And he says, Peter, you're getting up from that table in that simple act 
was filled with implications because what you were saying was, you Gentiles, I'll have fellowship with you on, on my timetable. I know that in Christ, the dividing wall is broken down and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We look different. We're from different backgrounds, but, but there's no longer Jew or Gentile. But, but there's this extra standard of righteousness that they expect, and I want to go to their small group. Maybe in our modern parlance, we might want to call it a click. If by click you mean me and this guy just have a lot of similar interests and we enjoy the Lord, that whatever. But if it comes down to a heart issue of I will not associate with them, I will not have them in my small group, I will not eat with them. Because I know they're Christians, I know they love the Lord, but there's this other standard of righteousness that I hold in my heart. I think Paul might have something to say. And I know Paul has come to me via the Holy Spirit through the words of Scripture when I'm reading this, and there's some yucky things in my heart. And it's been really, really good for this gospel preacher to say, Lord, I don't want just doctrine. Peter had doctrine. Gotta have doctrine. But don't let me lose gospel integrity by adding to the thing. Ray Ortland says this in his book, The Gospel. There was nothing intrinsically wrong with Peter's Jewish customs. Nothing intrinsically wrong with wanting to eat kosher meats or different things. It's an amoral issue. But there was something very wrong with requiring adherence to them after Christ had fulfilled them, which Peter did by distancing himself from the unkosher Gentile believers. In effect, Peter was saying that Gentiles had to believe the gospel and adapt to Jewish culture for them to be good enough for Christ and good enough for Peter. They were not his equals because they were not like him. And in doing this, Peter obscured the all-sufficiency of Jesus and exalted something of himself in the Lord's place. What an insult to the finished work of Christ on the cross. How demeaning to those blood-bought Gentiles. What an arrogant exaggeration of Peter's tradition. And what a violation of justification by faith alone. And what a pathetic church culture. End quote. And that's why I say when we read this text, which is so easy to fly through, When you see the implications and you see the harsh rebuke and you see Peter and Paul going toe-to-toe, pillars of the church, you realize no one is immune from this. And number two, the stakes are immense. He says Barnabas was led astray. Others were led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. And number three... This text calls us to take heed because legalism is imminent. No one is immune, the stakes are immense, and legalism is imminent. It's always there. It's always a threat. Let's go back to our text. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, so here's these Jewish professing believers coming in, expecting Jesus plus circumcision, Before they came, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, identifying with them as equals in Christ. But when they came, he drew back. That's a military term. It means to retreat. 
he retreats from this. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, what's the truth of the gospel? We come from all over. We look different, we dress different, all those things, but we are saved by the blood of Jesus, by repentance and faith in his name. And he says, your conduct's not in step with that reality because you pulled away from the table and thus said, there's another standard of righteousness that you have to meet if we're going to have fellowship. So I said to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? I can relate to Peter because his besetting sin was fear. I don't like to be disliked. I don't enjoy a fight. It takes a lot out of me. But if I am truly grounded in my identity in Christ, if I can say Galatians 2.20, just right around the corner, if I can say that, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that I'm dead. If I could say that, maybe the fear of man would start to drift away. Maybe the expectations of others, maybe the cliques won't matter as much. If I can say, my life is hidden with Christ and God. The fear of being disliked or not fitting into a certain group can quickly take us captive and make us legalists. John Stott says this of Peter, Peter knew perfectly well that faith in Jesus was the only condition upon which God will have fellowship with sinners. But Peter added circumcision as an extra condition on which he was prepared to have fellowship with them and thus contradict the gospel. Peter knew the gospel. He had good doctrine. Peter had good theology. But his desire to be accepted by someone else's standard of righteousness caused him to lose gospel integrity. So how can we diagnose ourselves? So at this point, you might be thinking, all right, enough. You've made your case. I get it. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But what do I do with it? How do I know? How do I remain balanced, as you say? How do I diagnose myself to see if I'm flagging in gospel integrity? Well, we must ask ourselves, what false forms of righteousness creep into our lives and bear the bitter fruit of a sinful pattern of behavior? So, drawing from a book that has helped me numerous times, The Gospel-Centered Life by Walker and Thune, we look at ourselves and say, do I add this to the gospel? Is it... Jesus, everything we sang in Christ alone, and let's say family righteousness. Meaning, I have the doctrine of grace alone here, but because I do the right thing as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. So it's Christ alone, but it's also family righteousness. Is it Christ alone? 
But then there's also intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, more theologically grounded, and more culturally savvy than other people, which makes me better. And really, I believe in Christ alone, but this dictates a lot of my fellowship, my dinner invitations, my social interactions. Is it Christ alone and schedule righteousness? Sin is so subtle, isn't it? Just a stupid meal. Just a meal. And yet Paul is all over it. Christ alone and schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. It's Christ alone, amen. But you know how they are, so don't even bother inviting them. Hmm. It's Christ alone, but it's also mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way everyone should. It's Christ alone, but it's legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Hear me, this is not an anti-holiness sermon. We're talking about things that are biblically regulated, saying thou shalt not, amen. We're talking about things that are amoral, that we raise to the level of a moral standard. Hear me, sin is sin. But if I halt from fellowship with another believer because, well, they just, they can't control their kids and they parent differently and they just, give me Bible for that. And tell me how that maintains gospel integrity and tell me how the world's going to look at that and go, wow, just loving each other like crazy. They won't. Be prepared at all times to give a reason for the hope that is within you. That that assumes they're asking. And I have to ask myself, when's the last time an unbeliever asked me for a reason for the hope that I have? They say, I see integrity in your life between what you confess and how you live. Tell me more. I want that. I want that for you guys. I want that for Jesus' sake. We must take heed of a little text like this nestled in a passage of Scripture that we often overlook because no one is immune, because the stakes are immense, and because legalism, not holiness, but extra-biblical standards of righteousness for the sake of fellowship, that threat is always imminent. And maybe this sermon doesn't mean much right now, but fast forward five years, ten years, 20 years where you've been together and you're starting to rub shoulders and you're irritating each other and there's more people, which means there's more sinners and we're going to sin against each other. Did you know sinners come to church? They do dumb stuff and they hurt each other. Sheep bite. And the subtlety of pulling away from a meal in the name of pragmatism, you know how they are. You can have all the books you want in your library, but there's still a gospel integrity issue at that point. And I have violated it and felt the rebuke of Almighty God for it, and I would spare you that, brothers, sisters. Let your conduct commend your confession. May God give us grace, grace 
to maintain gospel integrity for his namesake and for the unity of the body of Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that is what we sang this morning. No list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. We sang that. Do we mean that? May it be. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the power of your word. I am the chief of sinners in this regard. Lord, I have read book after book after book and turned around and added a standard of righteousness that you do not require. For the way people dress, the way they talk, the books they read, the conferences they go to, the way they run their lives. These are amoral issues, God, and yet, like Peter, because I want to be accepted, so forgive me and help us. Would you spare Grace Bible from some of the stupidity and sins of my youth? And would you fill them with your spirit? That they would be indeed a doctrinally grounded people. Pastor Jacob aims for them to have minds that bleed Bible. But may it also sink down into their hearts and have deep, deep affection for one another. As Peter would go on to say, and I have a feeling I know why he said it. Let love cover a multitude of sins. Help them be that kind of people with gospel integrity. In Jesus' name, amen.